Good afternoon, and uh, welcome to the uh, virtual uh, Cato Institute uh, and our forum on uh, contact tracing and uh, privacy in a pandemic. Uh, as uh, states begin fitfully to move toward reopening uh, in uh, uh, conditions of a continuing uh, coronavirus emergency, uh, public health uh, experts seem to be agreed on the idea that reopening safely requires both uh, widespread testing and uh, widespread contact tracing, uh, testing to identify uh, new cases before they uh, can spread, uh, and tracing to identify people uh, who have uh, been exposed to or come in contact with uh, those who test positive for the novel coronavirus uh, in order that they can be tested and identified uh, and ideally uh, prevent new resurgent outbreaks, uh, uh, which you know, would undo the progress that we, uh, whatever we, progress we've made in months of lockdown. Um, but in addition to kind of conventional uh, contact tracing, which is uh, something that was uh, familiar uh, in uh, infectious disease circles as a, a, a public health tool, um, we are seeing a raft of proposals for a, a variety of methods to enlist uh, digital technology and in particular mobile phones uh, as a sort of supplement to uh, traditional contact tracing based on interviews. Uh, and this brings with it, of course, a, a variety of uh, privacy and civil liberties concerns. Um, are we uh, constructing an architecture of monitoring that is prone to mission creep to uh, uses beyond the emergency that initially justified them, as we find uh, so often happens in, for example, the war on terror, an area uh, I study. Um, some 34 countries at least have adopted some form of uh, mobile technology-enabled contact tracing. Uh, in March, um, uh, Israel passed new legislation allowing uh, intelligence tools um, to be deployed for uh, contact tracing and pandemic mitigation. Uh, at the time, uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, said that the country would be domestically uh, making use of measures only previously deployed against terrorists. Um, he said, yes, this is, this is going to be, uh, frankly, invasive and uh, infringe on privacy, and we need to uh, effectively get used to that. Um, but there are a wide array of different approaches to enhance contact tracing. Uh, and so we want to sort of explore the landscape uh, and try to uh, inform uh, our viewers about what the different approaches are, what privacy trade-offs in, are, are involved, uh, whether we should think any of this is likely to be effective, uh, and whether some models might be uh, safer than others in terms of striking the right balance. Uh, between uh, providing value to uh, public health authorities uh, and to individuals and uh, creating a kind of dangerous uh, centralized repository of information uh, that might be misused for other purposes. Uh, and so we have an excellent uh, panel to discuss this topic. Uh, we have, uh, I'm used to, used to saying to my left, but uh, in, in the Brady Bunch screens uh, surrounding me, uh, we have uh, Ali Lang, who is uh, government affairs and public policy manager at Google, um, which uh, recently rolled out its own uh, uh, API application program interface uh, for contact tracing that seems destined to be uh, widely used. Uh, Ali is formerly from the uh, privacy advocate at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Uh, we have Ryan Kahlo, who is a, a co-director of uh, the Tech Policy Lab and a professor of law at the University of Washington. And on the uh, very short list of people who, if, if they have a new uh, paper out on uh, SSRN, I, it goes right to the top of my reading queue uh, as someone who follows uh, technology and privacy issues. Uh, and Harper Reed, who is a technologist and tech entrepreneur. Uh, he was the uh, founder uh, and CEO of uh, Modest, a mobile uh, commerce startup, uh, which is now, uh, has been acquired and is now PayPal Commerce, as well as a senior fellow at uh, the Annenberg Innovation Lab at the University of Southern California. So uh, to begin with, I know, uh, you know, contact tracing is, is a phrase we are hearing uh, quite a lot now, but um, one most people were not previously uh, incredibly familiar with. So uh, I want to begin by asking 
Ryan, can you maybe walk us through what contact tracing is traditionally and how uh, some of the proposals and indeed approaches uh, we're seeing being rolled out in the around the world uh, are different and what what different concerns uh, may attach to that? Um, sure, and thank you very much, uh, Kato, for putting this on and, and for inviting me um, to talk with you. So as Julian already alluded to, contact tracing is a tried and true, um, well understood method of containing virus um, uh, spread. And it's been in continuous use throughout the world um, for at least a century. Um, a contact tracer, if they're doing their job well, they're part detective, part social worker, part nurse or doctor. Um, they're trying to take people who are infected and they're trying to figure out who do they have contact with, where did they go, who do they interact with, but they're also listening to that person, they're advising them, they're connecting them to resources. Um, you know, Truly, they're doing a, a number of different um, helpful tasks. Uh, you contrast that with, for example, exposure notification. Um, you know, that's something that people, you know, invented a few a few months ago. I mean, you know, the, the less snarky way to say that is to say that it's a it's an untested uh, means of of picking up on um, a, a, a exposure to somebody that is known to have uh, to be positive for coronavirus. Um, there's a number of different approaches. Uh, you know, the, the, the limitations of contact tracing, um, traditional contact tracing are sort of well understood. It's really labor intensive. Um, it requires just a lot of people to get trained really well and very fast. You know, states are hiring thousands of people and experts wonder if that even is enough. Um, and then they're also, you know, it's really um, potentially feels a little invasive. I mean, you know, hopefully these folks will, will, um, have really significant safeguards around what they do. Um, but the idea is that a person's asking you really personal stuff about what is your health status and health history? Who are you friends with? Where are you? Where have you been? Uh, it's hard to imagine more sensitive um, set of questions almost than, than those. And so the intuition is, um, you know, how can we help to scale up contact tracing with technology because it's so resource intensive? And then are there methods that we can use um, that are not quite as... Um, uh, uh, perilous from a privacy perspective, and so I would put I would put the different technological approaches in those in those buckets. All right. Uh, so let's let's try and, and get a little bit more concrete there. Um, I think the the sort of press discussion of uh, technology assisted contact tracing has has unfortunately tended to conflate a uh, a wide array of. Uh, different, you know, quite different approaches with, with often very different levels of risk to privacy and different types of risk. Uh, so Harper, as our as our um, resident tech expert, um, can you and, and someone who has been involved for since really sort of the outset uh, with a, a variety of efforts to uh, explore how uh, technology can assist contact tracing, um, can you outline some of these different approaches and and perhaps um, you know? Yeah, how you view them in terms of relative effectiveness and risk. Well, I mean, the first thing we have to kind of talk through is basically just echo what Ryan said, which is all of this stuff is very speculative. Um, the, with that, I'm sorry, I should I should be very clear. Contact tracing is something that has been very effective and has you know been done as Ryan said for for a hundred years or so, and it it is the right approach and is what we should be investing in. But COVID nineteen is a very a spectacular virus. It does really wild things. And it's there's a lot of things that are unexpected that we haven't seen before. Um, obviously, we're in a pandemic, etc. And so there is this want to attach some technology to make contact tracing go faster. Um, exposure notification has kind of sucked a lot of the air out of the conversation around contact tracing. And it has made um, or is and, and because of the conflation in the popular press, it, it has made the conversation really complicated and nuanced. So let me go through some of the kind of different solutions that we've seen out there. Um, you know, the first solution that kind of popped up on the scene was was traced together out of Singapore. And it was an app that was pushed out. It used Bluetooth. Um, and 
there was a lot of excitement around this because it was one of the first ways that we saw um, really interesting organization um, doing kind of some very good work to try and um, solve this problem. And the issue that we had was, or not we, but the Singapore had was, um, it wasn't clear on how much adoption they had and how effective it was. And this is kind of something that, that we just see over and over again. We're unsure on the efficacy around exposure notification and around technology that's consumer focused. Um, so that was the beginning. Um, from there, there was a lot of really great uh, folks who were jumping out and doing different solutions. One of them came from um, MIT, uh, Ramesh and his team doing safe paths, which is now called Pass, Path Check. Um, and then there was a, a, a lot of that was focused a lot on GPS. A lot of the, the complaint was that Bluetooth is inherently insecure and GPS, because it doesn't emit anything, is much more private. Um, however, GPS is often used um, or is often tied with like a centralized data store where suddenly you're storing all of your consumers' location data in one place. Um, that could be potentially subpoenaed by federal government, state government, local government, et cetera, for maybe some things that are not necessarily related to COVID-19. Um, and so that gets kind of sticky. Um, so around this time, there was a bunch of folks in, in Southern California and in the Bay Area who were starting to think around how can we solve this problem? And that popped up some, some of the apps such as COVID Watch and whatnot, who were doing really great work on a Bluetooth protocol. Um, everything was humming along. Everyone was thinking about how do we get this into the hands of the users? Um, and then um, luckily Apple and Google um, launched their, their thing. And I, I can't wait to hear Ali talk about that. Before I talk about that, I do want to talk a little bit about some of the foundational um, privacy stuff though. A lot of the folks who are launching these apps around, around um, um, GPS and around Bluetooth um, talk about it as decentralized versus centralized, meaning that the centralized, there's a centralized data store somewhere up the chain. So you use an app on your phone and all the data is pushed somewhere. Um, typically that is a private company. Typically that is someone that, that is a little bit, you know, maybe we don't want to share our location with that organization. Um, whereas a lot of the exposure notification apps that we're seeing now are much more privacy preserving. They're, all of the technology, all of the execution resides on the client device. A lot of the kind of storage is, is stored via differential um, privacy so that anything that's pushed up to an aggregate view is actually safe for the users, that their location information, their symptom reports, et cetera, are not actually shared with uh, in a centralized um, kind of server. Um, but this causes problems in itself, which is if we have an exposure notification app that doesn't actually collect any useful information for the public health, all it does is do early, early notification of exposure, um, which is important, but it doesn't actually do contact tracing. And so there's a lot of nuance over and over and over again. And um, I think we can get into that a little bit more, but I'd love to hear from, from Ali. You're muted, Julian. I believe uh, uh, if you have an up-to-date uh, uh, Android or, or uh, iPhone uh, operating system, uh, you now have at least the, uh, the protocol uh, loaded and ready. Uh, and it seems like just because of the ubiquity of uh, Android and, uh, and iPhone, um, this is going to be the basis for uh, a, a lot of approaches. Uh, so, Ali, can you walk us through how... Uh, Apple and Google's exposure notification. This is an important distinction: uh, exposure notification versus contact tracing, in the sense of someone centralized having a repository of uh, of traced contacts. Um, can you walk us through how the protocol works and how you made the design decisions you did? Um, how does it work to notify people of potential exposure while uh, doing this securely and anonymously? Yeah, I'm happy to. Thanks, Julian. And thanks to my co-panelists for setting the stage so well um, for kind of how we got to where we are. Um, I want to start by sort of doubling back or, or reaffirming something Ryan had mentioned, which is just sort of to start by acknowledging that we recognize that this technology is not a silver bullet, but it's rather sort of one tool to help us scale, um, you know, scale solutions and think kind of innovatively about how we can help under these exceptional circumstances. Um, and that was one of the reasons why, as Ryan mentioned, we switched from using the phrase contact tracing to using the phrase exposure notification to describe what it is that Apple and Google are supporting. Um, just sort of more accurately describes the role that the, the API is playing in the overall ecosystem. I also wanted to underline just briefly some of the things that we think the mobile technology might be able to help support in the broader system. Um, so Harper's excellent points around, you know, 
where is this adding value? What is it describing in the broader system? I think those are really good points. Um, some of the things that are worth considering, right, is that mobile devices can help us capture um, proximity between people we don't know. So if you're on the bus, right, regular contact tracing, manual contact tracing is not going to help you identify the people who are on the bus with you. Um, so an exposure notification solution does help solve that kind of problem of manual contact tracing, of identifying people who have been around you, but who you don't personally know. Um, uh, you know, and it's, it provides a solution there for sort of something that's not already solved by manual contact tracing. We're also hoping um, that it will sort of scale, help scale and alleviate some of the pressure on public health departments, um, leveraging the mobile technology we have to help alert people, help them make decisions, help the um, public health departments deliver notices. Um, it's almost impossible to contemplate every possible use case or every possible scenario somebody might find themselves in when they would receive a notification or find out um, that they have some, you know, uh, concern or reason that they um, need to think about the, the possibility of having been exposed to COVID. But one of the use cases I contemplate a lot um, as we're going through this is if you are a caretaker for somebody who is elderly and vulnerable, um, and as we start to return to daily life, if you're making trips to deliver groceries or you're sort of in a position to, to provide them with, um, you know, regular care and sort of other considerations, um, do you want to have a sense of, you know, if you had been exposed, is that something that would help you make a decision about whether you should go today or maybe you should send somebody else? Um, does it make you help you make a decision about how long you should stay or how far away you should, um, you know, visit from or if you're going to drop something off, how you would treat those things you drop off? I think there's just a number of considerations just about people making decisions as we return to daily life that are worth having in mind as we think about what this exposure notification um, technology might help people kind of with the decisions that might help people make um, in and above the contact tracing solution. So just to sort of back, uh, step back a second, the Google and Apple technology um, does rely on low energy Bluetooth signals as Harper described. And this is something that had come up all over the world. Um, the idea of using Bluetooth, MIT, Europe and Singapore, researchers in Europe and Singapore um, were all building kind of apps that relied on uh, Bluetooth low energy technology. Um, one of the challenges in these early implementations was there was, a challenge of interoperability between Apple and Android phones. Um, and so it wasn't reliably capturing um, proximity interactions between people who were using the different operating systems. Um, there were also some other sort of technical challenges. It was really draining the battery. Um, it was something that the, the phone wasn't built for this type of solution, right? The Bluetooth scanning function wasn't built with this kind of functionality in mind. And so it just wasn't really fit exactly for that purpose. So the goal of the partnership between Apple and Google was to help address those issues and provide a sort of more reliable functionality to the extent that experts around the world were exploring this as a solution um, and really contemplating whether it could help us address some of the issues as we're moving back into daily life um, in response to COVID. Um, and it was also to create sort of common and really pretty high baseline privacy and security standards among the various applications of this technology. Um, and take the opportunity to make sure that they were consistent um, rather than having a bunch of fractured kind of approaches to the system. So the idea was to make sure the technology worked in a technical sense and also provide some continuity um, between various apps. So just a quick kind of summary of how it works. Um, once it's enabled, the user's devices, uh, if you have it enabled on your device, your device will regularly send out a beacon via Bluetooth. And this beacon is gonna include a random identifier, which is basically a random string of numbers that are tied to your identity. Um, and this identifier will change every 10 minutes or so, 10 or 20 minutes. At the same time, other phones in your phone will be listening for these beacons around you as well as they're broadcasting theirs. And when each phone receives another beacon, it will record and securely store it on the device for a set period of time. And then at least once a day, the system will download a list of the keys for beacons that have been verified to have a positive COVID diagnosis. Um, and your device will check the list of beacons it's stored against that list. And if it sees a match, right, it will flag for you, you may have been exposed. So if you're the person who's been exposed, the, the mechanism of delivering that information um, involves going to the doctor, having a test, going through the public health authority process, right, which is sort of the organic process of, of doing this um, irrespective of the app. And then the public health authority will help you with some system that allows you to validate um, and sort of signal your results um, move and you have the option then to download your keys up into the server to sort of help people execute this process. So what Google is building is not the entire app, right? Google and Apple have provided the API, the sort of one piece of the core technology um, that will that will empower this system. Um, but the public health authorities still play an important role in terms of building the application, in terms of um, helping people validate their test results, um, and in terms of setting some of the parameters of what it means um, to be positive.
So just to help us visualize this, I'm gonna project, hopefully, um, a brief scenario. Um, I think hopefully is working. Uh, so in this scenario, um, you can see Alice and Bob are spending some time close to each other, maybe on a park bench now that the weather is getting nicer. Um, during this interaction, their phones are exchanging a beacon, right? As I mentioned, their phones are sort of registering that they were spending this time together. Later, you can see Bob here having a, a kind of bad day, um, having a positive interaction, um, or sorry, having a, a confirmation that he has had COVID-19. Um, and then you can see in the bottom column what's been happening on their phones, right? So here's the phones exchanging the keys, and then here's Bob sort of moving his um, positive test result into this temporary store to indicate that he has had the the COVID-19 a positive result. So Alice, meanwhile, has been continuing about her day, um, kind of merrily moving along. Her phone is just continuing to register other keys and periodically downloading the keys. Um, and as it downloads the keys after Bob has uploaded his, um, it'll tell her, oh, you've had a positive interaction um, or interaction with somebody who is confirmed to have um, COVID-19. These are asynchronous uh, notifications. So it won't be the case that if she were sitting next to him, you know, in real time, she would get this notification in real time. It says sometime later, right, she'll see a notification on her phone, you may have come in contact with somebody um, who possibly had this, and she'll receive a notification from the public health authority with instructions about what she'll need to do next. Um, I realize I'm taking up a lot of the time, but I just want to briefly um, go over some of the privacy protections that are built into the system, um, just to sort of help us have the same baseline as we're going through the rest of the conversation. So um, first of all, I just want to give a, a big acknowledgement that um, a number of people around the world, privacy advocates, researchers, civil society organizations um, in the US and Europe and in Asia everywhere have really spent a lot of time doing a lot of thinking and, and contemplation of the right way to go forward here. There's been a great number of papers put forward um, uh, and a great amount of work that's been done both technically and in a policy space contemplating this. And so I want to make sure we're not coming across as thinking that we've in, you know, invented a lot of these things. These are things that have been contemplated by a number of really smart people. Um, and it's it's great to have such a good community working on this problem. Um, so some of the privacy protections that have been built into this are technical. Um, so each user will have to download an app, make a specific choice to turn it on. Um, and you can always turn it off. You have sort of controls on your device. The, the apps have to comply with the Play Store policies um, that already exist, as well as a special set of Play Store policies um, to help govern these, these rules. Um, developers also have to meet strict strict standards to ensure the privacy protection, including minimizing the data collection for what is um, And they can't use the data collected through this app for law enforcement or any punitive purposes um, or to sort of uh, use this app for data collected for advertising or anything like that. Um, apps that use the exposure notification API are also prohibited um, from requesting permission to some of the other permissions on the phone. So they can't request permission for location, background location, if they're using the exposure notification API um, or contacts, uh, your contact book. Just a quick distinction that that doesn't mean they can't ask a user or an individual for this information. Like they could ask you for your phone number, they could ask you for your zip code and you could decide to give it. Um, but the app can't be required. The information can't be required in order to, to use the API. Um, just a couple more quick notes and then I'll turn back to the panel, but um, the use of the API is also limited to COVID-19 response efforts specifically. Um, I just want to clarify that the, the intent there is not COVID-19 as a, as a medical name for the virus, right? It's COVID-19 in, in the sense of this pandemic, um, right, to help respond and sort of get people back into daily life under these conditions. Um, and then there, there are other restrictions on the application that are not necessarily about privacy. Um, for example, limiting one um, application for bigger geographic areas, trying to sort of consolidate people into, into apps as much as possible um, to improve their efficacy and really help them kind of work. Um, the apps can also be disabled on a regional basis. Um, so it's not the case that we have to leave the entire system sort of up and running um, until COVID is um, gone everywhere, but rather you can make more granular decisions um, around how this works. So as I mentioned, these, these protections, some of them are technical, right? So doing the matching on device, doing some of the, the technical safeguards around what, what permissions you can restrict um, uh, request. And some of them are policy per, uh, restrictions around things like the punitive purposes and the law enforcement. There's a variety of different tools we've brought to try and help um, set, do the best we can to set this up for success, um, all under the logic that um, folks are more likely to feel comfortable using this technology if there's strong privacy protections um, and safeguards built in. All right. Uh, let me just follow up very quickly on that. Uh, 
in response to the fairly uh, privacy protective uh, architecture, uh, we've seen sort of maybe ironically uh, some uh, European governments, uh, which are used to um, you know objecting that that Google and Apple or Google at least collect too much information, um, now saying, hey, this is too much uh, privacy protection. There's a lot of information that would be useful to public health authorities um, that that we're not able to get now, uh, and why don't you? allow us to gather more data that, uh, that uh, you know, would be useful so we can reach out to people so we can uh, maybe see larger patterns here. Um, can you say a little about what went into thinking about, about trade-offs there in, in determining um, how to design this system? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we had contemplated as we were designing this was really, like I said, what are the privacy expectations of our users? Um, that being the, the sort of stakeholders, right, that we're closest to, how do they understand things to work? Um, and again, a lot of the decisions about how to operate this have been reviewed and contemplated by a number of people around the world. Um, I think to the extent that folks feel that the, the information that's collected through the API is insufficient um, for the entire web of contact tracing, that seems correct and irrefutable. Um, but again, the idea was not to provide an end-to-end -end contact tracing solution, but rather to sort of solve a few of the problems, help with scale, help sort of funnel folks into the formal system, um, help people kind of do some of the work they need to do in terms of um, managing this really, you know, completely novel situation that we're in. And so I think that what, what would be what I would suspect, right, is that the more privacy protections you have installed, the more confidence people have that those protections um, are the same in a lot of different cases or sort of um, enforced in a level that they can understand, the easier it is to turn it on. And really privacy, you know, the, the strongest privacy protections can kind of get you to a space where people have feeling that there's low risk. Um, and then on top of that, you have to sort of demonstrate value. And so the privacy protections you know, they, they can do a great amount of work in terms of eliminating concerns and sort of eliminating barriers um, and really to sort of set the apps up and set the effort up for the best possible chances of success. We feel the design that we've approached um, and decided on is, is the best possible way to do that. That being said, other apps are allowed in the store. Um, other folks are still able to pursue different solutions. Um, there's just rules about you have to meet sort of different, uh, in our case, Play Store criteria. Um, for any COVID-related app, there's criteria that apply. Um, and then the API use is restricted, um, as I mentioned. And so there's other approaches that are still continuing and are still underway. Uh, okay, well, so let's let's uh, let's now then turn to the uh, our, our technologist and our, our uh, privacy law expert. Uh, I, can we get sort of a review both of um, the Google Apple protocol and uh, you know, so is is this do you think adequately? protective is it likely to be uh, effective or uh, and and uh you know if this is sufficiently protective for your taste uh can we sort of contrast it with um other models that uh you think do pose uh you know more of a a, a risk of civil liberties um harper would you like to start or oh, ryan <laughs> yes. uh, would you like to start sorry let's look at our internal chat um sure and ali thank you so much for that really um uh lucid descriptive um, account. It's really helpful and, and uh, is a starting place. So, I mean, I guess I have a couple of different kinds. Um, I have a couple of different kinds of concerns here. Um, so, okay, so with manual contact tracing, as I said earlier, tr you know, truly you're talking about sensitive data and you're talking about human beings and particularly the government getting a hold of it. Um, and so that should be done um, anyway. <laughs> and it should be done anyway because it is a critical uh, component um, of addressing the spread of virus. Um, and it should be done with every imaginable safeguard. I've been quite critical of the initial description of some contact tracing requirements in Washington as not adequately safeguarding privacy and civil liberties. It's a deep concern to me. But I think that what you get in exchange for that trade-off is enormously important, which is that, um, you know, coupled with widespread testing um, and, uh, and, and, and so on, you, you actually have the possibility of beginning to return back to a sense of normalcy. Um, with the exposure notification, as Ali was careful to, to say, you don't, um, you don't get contact tracing. What you get is a notification that you have been exposed to someone 
potentially with, with COVID-19. Um, and I worry that um, the accuracy will not be sufficient for people to make the kinds of decisions that they would need to. Um, so my first concern is that it would be over and under inclusive. That is to say, in one scenario, you're sitting on a bus, someone else on that bus has po reported positive for COVID, you're alerted. In another scenario, you're sitting on a bus and another bus pulls up next to that bus and you're sitting for a period of time next to a bus where some where somebody else has COVID and you have not come into contact with them. Um, you know, this is not likely to be possible under the Apple Google infrastructure, but just to point out that in North Dakota, um, when they rolled out their contact tracing app using Bluetooth, it was notifying people about contacts that were two blocks away. So unless that's calibrated really well, um, that's a that's a concern. So the possibility that you you get keep getting pinged over and over again because um, you seem to have some had some some fleeting contact. Um, another possibility is that you will be exposed to someone with COVID nineteen and the exposure notification app won't tell you. The reason is is they don't have a phone, they haven't downloaded the app, they've downloaded the app but they left it in their car, um, and so on. Right? Uh, they they download the app and they they use it and so on. But the way that you got exposed was because of air circulation in an office. In other words, you could have been exposed, but you come to believe that because you're carrying this exposure notification app, it's all good. Someone will tell me if I am exposed. So the the, the micro version of that is individuals will make choices and they won't be adequately well informed because the technology is not effective enough. It isn't accurate enough. It's a point that's been made by many, many people. Um, another, another possibility is that um, it could become a vector for disinformation. How could that be? Well, because one of the things that Apple and Google don't um, require, that is to say they don't police this technically as far as I know, and Harper and Ali should um, weigh in if I'm wrong, um, they don't police uh, the way in which you confirm that in fact you have been positively diagnosed with coronavirus. Now, hopefully the public health authorities that build these apps, and they have to be public health authorities according to Google and Apple, will, will solve for that problem and make it impossible for someone to fake it. But if they don't, and if they build a system that lo and behold isn't perfect, um, it will be an attractive vector for disinformation because imagine how helpful it would be for any number of actors to cause a lot of people to believe at the right time in the right place that there's been an outbreak of coronavirus. Simple example would be around polling, um, you know, polling places at a particular time in November. Um, so, so that, so that, so on, on, on balance, I'm not all that concerned about the privacy and civil liberties uh, issues around exposure notification, because I think that a lot of the thoughtful things that Google and Apple have done are right. And um, I mean, I, I, I do want to point out that relative to what your phone usually does, it is a bit of a privacy departure because your phone doesn't usually send out constantly, <laughs> here I am, here I am, here I am. And there's maybe ways to sort of um, uh, leverage the, the unique identifiers that, that, uh, that, it, that it puts out. But, but it's been very thoughtful from a privacy perspective. So it's more that I'm worried that people will have a false sense of security or else will be stuck at home because they're constantly getting pinged uh, and in fact, um, uh, uh, you know, um, and in fact, it's the source, it's actually disinformation or it's inaccurate. Let me stop there, but those are some of the concerns I have with exposure notification. Okay. Um, I, I do think people might be surprised actually just how often your phone is sending out a here I am, here I am, here I am. Um, but uh, let's, instead of uh, hearing me on that, we should turn to our, our technologist, uh, Harper. Um, so I guess any reactions to this particular protocol, but also more generally um, looking at the landscape, um, maybe also, you know, we're, we've been talking about a Bluetooth based proximity model. Um, that is something that doesn't look at where are you on the planet, but who is near you, um, or at least what phones are near you. Um, so can you maybe talk about that relative to location approaches and, um, yeah. you know, either, either, you know, if you have any sort of critiques, but also, you know, is there, are there any uh, models you've seen that are kind of what not to do object lessons? Uh, what, what is, what is yeah. the, the, the model to avoid? Right, right. I think, you know, there's a, there's, there's a whole bunch to unpack there. Um, and I think the easiest way is just to, to once again, reiterate that the, that 
just both what, what Ali and Ryan said. I know we're kind of saying the same thing here. The first thing is, is that Apple and Google's approach seems to be very privacy preserving. Um, I'm pretty impressed with, with what it has done. I like where it is going. I like the privacy kind of requirements that they're pushing out there. Um, I do think there's one big problem with all of these solutions, which is for the most part, they require a smartphone. 80% um, of the people in the US have smartphones. That means 20% are just not included in this network if we have a huge amount of penetration. Um, oftentimes those people are the ones that are even vulnerable to COVID-19 anyway. So the people that need it the most might not have access. Um, and that that is also assuming that every smartphone that's out there gets access to these APIs, which I don't think is true either. And so there, that does mean that it starts narrowing down the people who can have access to this good, good technology um, if it is successful, if it is adopted, et cetera. So there seems to be a lot of variables and that's concerning no matter what the technology is. Smartphones, we do not have 100% penetration there. Um, access is not equally distributed, um, evenly distributed even. And, and I, I worry about that quite a bit because one of the things about technology is oftentimes it does not necessarily help our most vulnerable people. They remain vulnerable. They are not uplifted into being given access to these things. Um, so with that said, though, I do think Google's privacy is very good. Google and Apple's privacy is very good. I'm impressed with that. Where I think we have to be very careful is when exposure notification or consumer-facing contact tracing apps use GPS and centralization. One of the nice things about the Google and Apple approach and some of the other approaches like DP3T or TCN is that there is not centralization. It is decentralized. Your phone, um, if you're lucky enough to have a phone, um, is able to run the program. It runs the API. It, it communicates with other devices, but it doesn't share information. Um, it doesn't share who you are. It doesn't share um, information the other direction as well. If you are notified of exposure, it doesn't say who, who that exposure was. Um, it's very, very clear, the privacy there. Um, whereas if it's some of these GPS-based solutions, I think there's Healthy Together, um, there's Care19, um, and, in, and in some regards, the, the path check. Um, the liability is that GPS can be stored um, and it can be used against you. And so we've seen in the past where location information can be used um, to to do things that are that are um, that that we wouldn't want have happen, and I think the the worry there is, let's say um, I set up a company, it's using centralized store of GPS data, um, and I'm not very careful about it from a privacy standpoint, um, and more importantly, the laws in the United States allow for the for um, the the federal government to use it for ICE or for use it for law enforcement or something that's not related to COVID-19. Um, then suddenly you have a chilling effect from all the users who are scared to use it. That, which means they're then scared to participate in public health, which means they're then scared to, to engage in the interventions that are required to get us out of this. And my biggest fear is that we somehow mess up exposure notification and the privacy around that, whether, and for me, it seems the, the quickest way to do that is with, um, by focusing on centralized approaches, um, that we mess up that, that, that kind of experience and therefore screw up contact tracing. Because if, if you're worried about the government's interactions with your data, if you're worried about privacy, if you're worried that these technologies are going to stop you from working, stop you from providing, to, from providing for your family, et cetera, then that is going to lead then to being scared of interacting with public health, of interacting with contact tracing, and of, of, of getting healthy. Um, and the last thing we want is vulnerable people who are already vulnerable, um, feeling like they're more vulnerable because of the technology that we are um, intending to be good. Um, and so that's something that I'm very, um, I'm very um, concerned about. But you know, I I'm obviously not Google, and I think I'd love to hear like what APIs are available on on which platforms and whatnot. And I'm sure that Ali has more information than I on that. Yeah, Ali, did you did you want to respond? Yeah, I I think that was a great summary, Harper. I just wanted to sort of briefly note because um, I had failed to to include it in my original summary. Um, that the the goal is for the API that we've built to be operational on as many versions of the operating system as possible, right? Because a lot of phones run old operating systems. So um, if I remember correctly, I think it's iPhone or iOS 6, um, and then Android Marshmallow is where we've got to currently, and the goal is to push it as far sort of back in time um, as we can and make older operating systems eligible, um, which is maybe a, a, it's a big deal anywhere, but maybe a bigger deal in developing markets. Um, I also just wanted to, to sort of note too, is we've, we've clarified, I think pretty well, all three of us, that this is not meant to be in a complete contact tracing solution, but it's probably worth noting that even contact tracing is maybe not meant to be the entire solution to COVID-19 at all, 
right? And so we have to remember we still, we're not trying to sort of get rid of other things like social distancing or physical distancing, um, right? Or sort of um, mindfulness around masks and things like this. Um, and so if you are in the, the space of a digital divide, which I agree is, is, is a challenge, um, it might help people around uh, those vulnerable populations make smarter decisions. Um, it also isn't meant to replace some of the protections that are currently in place, but rather to supplement and sort of provide more information on those points. Um, so I thought that was a kind of a, a useful distinction too, right? It's not meant to get rid of these other protections we have in place. Great, thanks for that. Um, so I wanna now uh, give uh, those uh, viewing at home uh, an opportunity to uh, ask uh, any questions they have of our uh, expert panel. Um, so if you are uh, wherever page you're, you're viewing this on, there should be uh, a window uh, where you can submit questions. Uh, if you like, you can also uh, use the hashtag Cato Technology on Twitter uh, to submit questions. So uh, if you have anything you'd like to ask our, uh, our panel, um, please do go ahead and shoot me, uh, shoot me something. Uh, we do have a question from uh, Jake LaPruc, who I know is uh, a senior counsel at the Project on Government Oversight, uh, who is asking about uh, retention limits that uh, apps will or should set uh, for data that's being collected. Um, so uh, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll open that to anyone who, who feels like answering that. What is um, the right approach to Harper? Um, what, a, what kind of retention limits make sense in this context for uh, applications that are trying to do either exposure notification or contact tracing? So we dug into this quite a bit, and this is a great question because it's actually pretty um, complicated. And one of, when we were writing our, our kind of um, exposure notification privacy framework, which you can, which you can visit at exposurenotification.org, um, one thing that we talked about is like, how do we, um, how do we define this? And we kept going back and forth on um, how long. And what we, we basically summarized is um, the retention should be only as long as is required, as, ha as has an epidemiological need. So they should have a very clear um, plan for destruction, et cetera, but it should only be stored for as long as there is an epidemiological need. And I think that's really important because that opens us up to not having some artificial restriction of like 21 days or 14 days or, or some of these kind of numbers we've heard around the epidemiology as we learn more about the virus. But I think it's really important to, to say this is rooted in epidemiology. It's not rooted in necessarily a, a want to store the data for a long time, but it's rooted in epidemiology. And I know that's a soft answer. This isn't a hard answer. Um, and I, and I'm, I might there might be a specific answer in the API alley, is there? Yeah, so the, the exposure notifications have a sort of self-limiting value, um, and those are restricted and sort of automatically deleted, um, I think after a little bit beyond what we understand, right? But they're only, the only, um, well, at least as we understand today, it's 14 days, right, that you have to be around someone. And so I think there's a little bit of a grace period. I think it was 30 days, they're automatically discarded, or it might be at 14. Um, and that's one of the criteria that's set by the API. Um, just sort of stepping back to, to Ryan's example earlier of the buses, there are other criteria of exposure that can be set by the public health authority through the app developer. That would be the signal strength, like what signal strength do you think is necessary in order for transmission to occur, um, an amount of time, like duration of time two phones have been in proximity. The idea of letting those be more granular or sort of more easier to change um, is that we might learn new information in a much faster way about those things. But the duration of the key and exposure notification piece is somewhat um, more durable, so it's a bit harder to change. Um, there's a useful distinction too. I think Harper makes an excellent example of you know how we might think about what's useful for data retention in general. Um, for the API, that's the API, right? But the apps will also have to have some policy governing the data they want to retain and how long they'll have to have it, um, which is a sort of separate question. So I just want to make sure that distinction is clear. Um, but that's the the concept under the API. Uh, Ryan, you say you've done some research that is is relevant to this question. Yeah, I mean, so um, we did some research um, uh, at the University of Washington. Um, I was involved and then a, a computer scientist. And we did survey work about what what would be the kinds of uh, concerns people had around downloading contact tracing apps. Um, and we did this work before the Apple Google announcement. Um, and one of the things that was really interesting was that um, people had a greater, so, so Julian, you made 
you know, a, a reference um, a little bit ago to the fact that like your phone is constantly, you know, sending out messages about where you are. And I hope that that has penetrated even, you know, even among um, non-technologists at this point, that, that there is that functionality. When we spoke, when we surveyed um, people about who they'd feel most comfortable with um, making a contact tracing app and what features it would have, um, interestingly, a majority of people cited to companies that were already collecting their data for another purpose. So they would say, I know that the cell phone company needs to be able to triangulate where I am. Um, and I'd be comfortable with the cell phone company providing um, information about where I am for this other purpose. Or, um, you know, I know that, that Google or Apple Maps has to use GPS to tell me how to get to the grocery store. And I might feel more comfortable with that, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, this, this, this way of doing things now with exposure notification, um, all I'm trying to say is that um, there is uh, a sense in which Google and Apple are making a change in the matrix. Um, and that change is, I think, not entirely insignificant because what it says is that your low energy Bluetooth will constantly send out a notification and have the capability to store information and have the capability to do this and that. And so one of the things that I've been thinking about, other people have been thinking about is, um, say the, the API goes away after coronavirus, you know, knock on, on wood, um, someday, you know, coronavirus is under control. Um, will that capability persist and become commercialized? Because it turns out there's a number of different ways in which you could have a valuable service that um, was based upon with whom you had proximity, right? And indeed, we know today there are many services that use other expedients in order to do that, and actually including Bluetooth. Um, so one question I have is, you know, the data, how long is it stored? How long is this infrastructure that bridges by far the most popular apps that between them command almost the entire market, how long does this infrastructure persist beyond the pandemic? And that's a conversation that I think is is orthogonal, but related to the question of, you know, secondary use and mission creep that we've been talking about. Uh, yeah, uh, Ali, uh, do you want to speak to that? Is there is there a point at which you know Google says, okay, this emergency's over, this doesn't work anymore? Uh, how, how how do you think about that? Yeah, it's a it's a really great question, and I think it's sort of the question of the the time, right? I think there's been a number of decisions that have been made in a number of contexts that will all hinge on the question, what is the end of coronavirus? I think that's a question that nobody has a clear answer to. Um, what I can say uh, to 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 sort of more directly respond to Ryan's question around commercialization or persistence beyond um, whatever we define as the end of this situation um, is that in the, the terms of service and in several public statements so far, Google and Apple have committed to only using this uh, technology specifically for COVID-19 um, or this pandemic um, and specifically turning it off um, and requiring that the developers who use it are only using it for that purpose, even as they're using it today. Um, and we've outlined some of those specific cases, um, you know, thinking about law enforcement, as I mentioned, or other punitive cases are directly prohibited, um, even if you're using it first to respond to coronavirus and then maybe other things. So we've tried to sort of scope out some of that mission creep in the terms of service. Um, but we've also said several times that we intend to turn this off and sort of reduce the ability to have this functionality or eliminate the functionality um, when, when the end arrives. Um, the API or the terms of service for the API also do um, explicitly take on commercialization, um, preventing monetization of the app itself or the data collected through the app, not allowing advertising or marketing in the app and things like this. So we've sort of started to contemplate the best ways to put up the guardrails around the concerns that Ryan is addressing. Obviously, this is going to be a pretty long road that we're on um, to the end. And so it's something that we'll have to continue to think about, continue to think about what is the end. Um, when when do we agree that this is a, a no longer a helpful solution or something that we shouldn't be providing? I think is not a there's not a clear cut answer to that in any in any context right now. Um, but it's definitely uh, the questions that Ryan is raising are on the radar of the people who are working on the API at least, and I've seen several experts reference them. And there's a lot of good thinking being done. So I'm excited just to see more contemplation of those issues because I agree they're important. That's great. I mean, um, I just want to interject. Sorry, yeah, I was just interject. I mean, I, I think it's great. I mean, I think if if the if these companies can represent 
publicly um, that the that the technology will not persist beyond the pandemic, um, you know, that is enforceable, right? I mean, that's the kind of thing that um, if they were to go back on that, it would cause a significant problem. And so I'm really glad to see that kind of commitment um, about about the use of this technology. Um, you know, the, the, the scaffolding itself, the, the, the variability to create these location things. Um, in general, um, the thing that I've been calling for and that I think others have been calling for as well is to make sure that we get the full cooperation from Apple and Google um, to do what Ali's doing today, which is to give consumers and the public and public health authorities an accurate mental model of what the technology can do and what its limitations are, right? And so, you know, I think the way to um, help inoculate against um, the concerns that I have about disinformation, about lack of efficacy, about false positives, false negatives, um, is to make sure that the health authorities and the public know that this not only is this not an not only is it not a panacea on it, it can't be used on its own. Um, so that you shouldn't just hey just download the app and we don't have to do anything else. We don't have to train and hire thousands of people, but also that. Um, it just has its limitations and you shouldn't think of it as being foolproof. And I think that people like Ali are, um, um, are doing uh, good work through that. Just a second, we apparently have some other questions, but I am uh, trying to figure out. Uh, Can I ask a question, Julian? What they are. Sure. Um, I would love to hear from my co-panelists because I do think one, I think Ryan's use of the phrase mental model is a really um, good cue because one of the challenges I think we face in raising kind of public understanding and increasing public comfort with some of these technologies is it's hard to come up with a good mental model for to compare this to, right? Because it's not quite, although Harper, I'd love for you to answer, but it's not quite pairing to your Bluetooth speakers. So that's not really the right mental model and it's not location-based, which is a very intuitive thing to understand. So I would love to hear from my co-panelists if you think there is a mental model that we might be able to use a standard of comparison or something to help build public understanding. Because um, uh, I do think that's a, an important challenge and I would love your perspective on that. I find it really complicated actually. I, I, I think it's really hard to explain because for all the reasons you've said, like this is a, a new way that we're using the sensor on the phone. Um, it's not the typical use case where you're pairing with a car or a Bluetooth headset. And so you start to get this very kind of confusing um, kind of uh, nature to this. With that said, how I have described it to many folks um, is, is just by kind of describing what it does, which is um, your phone listens to other phones and just sees if they're near each other. Um, but, the, but that doesn't really help give a mental model on, on why we should use it. Um, and I think we... So maybe this is just an easy way of saying, I don't know. <laughs> um, and I could take a stab, but I'm, I'm worried that I just don't know. It's super, super hard. How I have described it, though, is I really describe it in the very simplest terms, just because I think that's easiest, and then pair it with our understanding of the virus. So specifically, we know that, for instance, if you're uh, you know, within six feet or whatever of a person for 10 minutes or something that is that is could be a problem. Um, and so making sure your phone can model that using location stuff. I think that's the key. But but this is a this is a really complex part. And I actually think part of the problem is, is that we're talking about something that is so speculative that we hope works, that we hope does early notification that because that would really help our, our public health people, it would help our hospitals, it would help in everything to get the earlier notification of exposure. Um, but it's so speculative that we don't really know how to describe it. And that's really tricky um, because it doesn't help with adoption when we're like, well, it might work. That's not really what people want to hear. Um, but it also kind of outlines a little bit of the dirty secrets of tech is that we never know how it actually works, that we, we hope it works. And I think we need a little bit more than hope here. So I'm not sure. I'm looking forward to kind of what comes after out of Switzerland with their test um, what comes out of the first states that go with this stuff. I, I'm really looking to see how that works um, because then I think it'll be easy to, easier to describe actually the, the outcomes. Uh, so uh, we have a follow-up. One of our uh, uh, viewers, uh, uh, Neil, uh, asks about, we've been talking a lot about the sort of the internal technical architecture. Uh, Neil Saito asks, um, essentially about the interface with, the rest of the world, um, 
Google is stressed making this voluntary, but how do you, uh, you know, deal with the idea of employers or other authorities uh, imposing their own requirements, saying, well, we're going to require you to install this either as a condition of employment or, uh, you know, in, in a blanket way. Um, and that sort of dovetails with uh, several people who asked, um, you know, how are you actually enforcing this? So you've chosen to, to uh, partner with uh, or not part with, but make this available to uh, government public health authorities um, if they are not observing uh, your your restrictions. You know what essentially do you do about a government? And I guess that's that's mainly for Alan. Brian uh, can uh, seems to have a yeah. Um, just on the, uh, the the side chat was uh, kind of um, uh, sending this in my direction, if I may. Um, so I, I, I've been working with a variety of lawmakers, particularly at the um, federal level, the Senate um, and, and House, about what legislation would look like that would put adequate guardrails on uh, the use of contact tracing apps, automated contact tracing, exposure notification and the like. Um, and one of the principles that has come out in a number of these draft bills has been the idea that um, you may not um, condition entry or services or employment or whatever it is um, on being able to show that you haven't had any contacts via an app. Um, now, what the thing to note about that um, is that um, uh, it's hard to enforce, um, but but also um, the, it's directed at the behavior of third parties. It's not directed at the behavior of Google or Apple. It's not directed necessarily even at the behavior of public health authorities, but rather it's telling everybody else, you can't condition certain things on, on, on having a clear you know, badge, like having an immunity badge or whatever it happens to be. Um, so it's just to say that it's on radar, but it's very difficult because the other thing too is that um, often um, companies and individuals and so on, are, they're not going to necessarily phrase it as you have to or, or, or else. They're going to say, hey, you get an advantage if you can. So you get an advantage, you get the discount if you do this. You, if you, um, you get a discount on insurance if you um, let us track how you drive, right? But then it becomes a de facto requirement because if you don't do it, then you're not participating on equal terms. But I think it's a, it's a, big, it's a big issue. And we have a, a actually an interesting question also uh, uh, from uh, from the audience. So the last one I think we have time for is just uh, how do you deal with, or I guess what about sort of the next generation of this? It sounds like you've got a, a decentralized proximity-based model that has protections people seem generally happy with, but um, there is a concern about sort of a, a bait and switch. What if the you know the two point um, you know, reflects less protected because now people all have this installed, they'll have it on their phones, but public health authorities say, well, we want more information. We want location information. Um, and suddenly you've kind of opted into something that changes uh, the way it works. How do you kind of guard against that? Or is it just sort of a commitment to not, to not do that? I think it's really, really, really hard. Um, I think that we have to, I think that's why these panels are important. That's why it's important to continue this dialogue. It's important to make sure that we're all talking about this publicly. I think the thing that that kills this is that if we, if we stop paying attention, we stop talking about it publicly, we stop trying to hold one another accountable to, to, to kind of talk about the privacy ramifications here. Because we could have all just said, yeah, let's use GPS and centralize it. It'll be fine because it'll give the data to the public health people that they need. And we don't consider the privacy implications. But I think we just have to be very thoughtful about that because right now the goal is to end this pandemic. Um, that is the first order goal. Um, I hope we can do this without selling out our privacy, but um, if things get worse, people are gonna have more of a stomach for selling out privacy, and I worry about that. Um, but the first order is to like be able to leave our houses, and I think this can help with that without sacrificing privacy, but I do worry that if things get worse or if things get more complicated, that we'll be you know, uploading GPS data, that will be, it's a slippery slope to um, a very complicated surveillance requirement. But one, one important thing here is that you always can turn your phone off. Um, and that's something that's important. And I don't mean the whole thing. You can turn off Bluetooth, you can turn off Wi-Fi, you can turn off GPS. Um, so, so the users are in control. But I do think that's 
that's a half of a that's half of the answer. Um, you know, because it is if everyone is participating, there is you you do feel compelled to participate, and and I would hope that we build a system that is privacy preserving, but also solves the public health issues. All right, thanks for that, uh, Harper, and thanks uh, to all of our uh, excellent panelists, as well as uh, those of you viewing from home. Uh, we have reached the end of our allotted time. I'm sorry if we were not able to get to every uh, question that was asked, but I, we are grateful for the, uh, uh, the, the intelligent questions posed. Uh, and uh, if you did not catch the entire thing or just want to relive the magic uh, later, uh, this uh, entire discussion will be uh, posted in the next uh, 24, 48 hours on cato.org under our events archive, so you can uh, check that out there. Uh, in the meantime, uh, everyone out there, please do uh, stay safe uh, and stay free.